Welcome to Midwretched, the home of the most heartless of the heartland. Join us, Tommy and Mick, as we share the best true crime tales the Midwest has to offer. Welcome back to Mid Wretched, friends. Welcome back. We're happy to have you today. We are so happy to have you. What's going on? Mm-hmm. I'm a homeowner. Yes, you are. Guys, she's a homeowner. Literally. A homeowner. Home- well, I will be soon, hopefully, like bearing craziness. But I found my mid century modern dream home with the big open kitchen and the fenced in yard. Yay. Guys, it's there's so going to be cute. so many dogs. It's so cute. Thank you. It's just so cute. I can't wait. And I get to be the first house guest. I feel very special. Yay! And I'm vaccinated. So that's news. Also so good. That uh-huh. is big news. But yeah, those are, those are my news points for the day. And look, you guys, she's not a reptilian. Hmm. I mean, I'm growing a tail, but I'm kind of into it. Yeah, I mean, that's cool. You wag it, girl. Yeah. I don't think I have any updates over here. Let's see. Um... Hybrid teaching is the worst. Mm-hmm. Do not recommend. Yeah. Zero out of five stars. That's about all I got. All right. Well. Really? I got a case for you, though. That's what I have. I got a case? You got a case? This is so exciting. Yes. I mixed up my pronouns when I said that, and I don't know why. <laughs> I know. It happens like, sometimes. I, I'm like, what did you get a case of? Oh. Uh, I got a case of curiosity about your murders. Ooh, very good. Very yeah. good. I like that. Should I just go ahead and get started? Yeah, let's dive into it. Oh, you know what I was thinking about? What? I think while I was editing the John Eric Armstrong case, do you ever think that you worked with any people that worked with him at Target? Oh, I'm sure. I'm totally sure. This wasn't yeah, they're that happy. far in time removed. Yeah, no. And I think in general, people were pretty happy at that Target. And I know at least the... Um, the store manager when I was there, she had been there for a bit. So I'm guessing that she was probably the one that hired him. Great. Oh, she hired Hope you're okay out there, Danielle. Yeah. Hi, Danielle. <laughs> so I saw this statistic. I think it said that um, the average person will walk by six murderers in their lifetime. I've done way more than that. I feel like I have two at this point because, mm-hmm. you know true crime reality right now but yeah one at one point i just happened to have a lot of murderers on my caseload oh yeah that makes sense yeah so you've you've had more than <laughs> more than six. the one pulling up the high end of the old bell curve there my friend yeah and that's one of those things that once you start doing it everybody's like hey mick i got i got this new client for you and i'm like yeah no, I know. And actually, today I'm going to ask you some questions to kind of help fill in some of the blanks here psychologically. Oh, no, I wasn't prepared. Okay. Oh, well, it's okay. I mean, I have the answers too, but it's cooler when you do it because you're a professional. Oh, okay. You're just testing my skills. Thanks. Yeah, pretty much. Luckily, however, I'm a professional storyteller, so... <gasps> Yay! That MFA has got to come in handy sometime. I hope Notre Dame really is proud of this podcast 
I hope they are too. Do you know that this is the the project that I've had that has been the most applicable to that degree? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it gets me jobs, but this is the one where the skills actually apply. So, yay. Finally. Thanks. You doing it for the Gipper. That's right. We do everything for the Gipper. We all do everything for the we Gipper. Yeah, you live in South Bend, you do it for the Gipper. All right. Let's talk about a case. This case. Okay. So this case takes us, we're going back to Missouri. It's been a few episodes since we've been to Missouri, but we're back. I don't think we've been in Missouri in Missouri since Bob, um, Bobby Joe Stinnett, but oh, yeah, you're Missouri right. a lot because of Lisa Montgomery. And we're back to the turn of the century, 2002. So I'm going to take you to Sunday, October 6, 2002. Okay. As so many of our stories begin on a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day in Richwoods, Missouri, which is a really, really small town um, surrounded by just beautiful forests. It's literally named after, you know, the surrounding forest. 11-year-old Sean Hornback was riding his lime green bicycle just kind of around town, as he very often did. He loved bikes. He was really into his mountain bike. He had just gotten <laughs> for his 11th birthday. Aww. Yeah, so it was a beautiful Sunday, and he was just not going to let it go to waste, you know? As you shouldn't. Yeah, exactly. So he left home at around 1 o'clock, and uh, he lived with his mom, Pam, and his stepdad, Craig. Now, his biological dad was not in the picture, and Craig was just like a phenomenal stepfather and we love a phenomenal stepfather yeah we do and uh they were very very close so when i say stepfather this is like the dad of sean's life so Mm -hmm. probably i'll just call him sean's dad because that's what sean would have called him but just for that the clarity's sake craig and pam Akers are the parents to sean hornbeck so sean told uh pam that he would be home for dinner And uh, he had a habit of straggling like once in a while, like kids that age, but he was very afraid of the dark. So even if he was like a little bit late, they knew that they would see him by dusk because he wouldn't be out past dark. He was terrified of the dark. And in that area, this is a very, very small town, 1500 people. It's not even actually incorporated. And just doing, like, Google Street View and stuff like that, like, it's crazy rural. So Mm -hmm. dark is going to be very dark. The interesting thing is this, okay? So he leaves at 1 o'clock that day. And he was last seen around 4.30 p.m. riding that bicycle westbound on Highway A, which is kind of a – it's a country highway, but the speed limit is, like, 55. But it's just two lanes. So it's, you know, it's called a highway, but it's not, like – I-90 or something like that. <laughs> That's what I was envisioning. And I was like, oh, dear. No, like country highway. Mm-hmm. So he was seen around 4.30 p.m. riding his bike westbound on, on Highway A, uh, which was very close to the elementary school that he went to. He was a fifth grader uh, and only a half a mile from home. And I think his appearance that day was pretty distinct. The bike itself was lime green. And his shirt was orange. So when you talk about what you should wear to be highly visible, Mm -hmm. he was highly visible. He had really, really dark hair, really fair skin. So he just kind of, he would have, you would have noticed, right? Like a kid in an orange shirt on a lime green bicycle. (laughs) He was like the poster child for visibility that day, you know? Good, good, like, good thinking. Good work, Sean Hornbeck. Yeah, totally. And that is why his whereabouts up until 4.30 were 
pretty easily traced. Many neighbors saw him just riding around kind of up and down that highway. It's like the one highway that kind of cuts through quote unquote town. Mm -hmm. The school little system is on the highway. There's a couple of churches, a general store, that kind of stuff. So lots of people saw him. He had popped into a small grocery store for a snack. And store owners, when they were interviewed later, like they remembered that he was there. Nothing particularly distinct about his attitude, his affect. They didn't even remember like what he bought. It was like he popped in for a snack. He didn't seem agitated. He didn't seem scared. Nothing like that. This is going to go downhill. It always does. Yeah. And here it's coming downhill real fast. When he wasn't home by 5.30, Pam started to really worry. By 6, which would have been about dusk, she was pretty scared. So she started calling some of uh, Sean's friends' houses, asking if anyone had seen him, you know, thinking like maybe he just got caught up. You know, there were some snacks and time just kind mm-hmm. of flew by, whatever, kid stuff, you know, like nothing yeah. crazy. But none of his friends had seen him. So by 8 p.m., she called the police and she was pretty freaked out. Obviously, good reason. Her 11-year-old has disappeared. Richwoods, like I said, is a really small town, 1,500 people. Just to put it somewhere geographically, it's about 60 miles southwest of St. Louis. Okay. And there is just, like, not a whole hell of a lot going on, to be honest. I mean, it's densely forested. It was once a mining town, but the kind of mining industry died, as is the story of so many Midwestern towns, right? Mm Mm-hmm. It had recently at that point been, again, like many Midwestern towns, (laughs) um, kind of a hub for a lot of meth-related. Oh, yeah. 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 So if there were crimes in town or in the surrounding area, it was related to the manufacturing dealing with meth. Mm -hmm. But if you weren't involved in that, it was kind of a quiet, chill, like, country town, you know, and nothing to it. That's why right away people thought, uh, police thought, it's so densely forested, he probably got maybe hit by a car, or he decided to explore the woods a little bit and got lost, that sort of thing. So a search was started that night. Of course, it's getting dark, so a search is not easy. By the next morning, which was a Monday, it was full swing. We've got land searches. We've got air searches. Wow. Um, Yeah, it was an endeavor kind of right away. It was a coordinated effort between the Washington County Sheriff's Office and the Richwoods Fire Department, which was a volunteer fire department, but they went in like with both feet. Um, You said when did all, when did like the full scale search start? That next morning, the Monday morning. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it was quick. I mean, they were out searching that night. It was just not a whole lot of search you can really do at that hour, you know? So yeah, Monday was really kind of like when everything really got underway. And again, at this point, people were thinking he's lost in the woods. Yeah. It wasn't that cold. It was a warm day. People were worried, but it wasn't like... He's 11, so people tend to give a little bit more leeway as opposed to like a six-year-old girl like we saw in the Alyssa Bustamante case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he was like a pretty outdoorsy kid. Like he loved Mm -hmm. his mountain bike, that kind of stuff. But, you know, the town did spring to action, too, which was pretty cool. The grocery store, the shop owners donated, like, snacks and batteries for flashlights and supplies for the searchers and stuff like that. And I saw a couple of anecdotes where people were kind of driving by, saw all the cars, got out, and were like, hey, what's going on? Being told, we're searching for a lost kid. And wherever those people were going, they were like, okay, I'm not going there anymore. I'm going to join the search. Oh, that's awesome. That's such an awesome community. 
Yeah, it really is. So people, and uh, this is one part of the story that just makes my heart sing um, because this really grows and grows and grows in a beautiful direction. So, you know, there are volunteers on foot, police on foot, firefighters on foot. There's helicopters. There are volunteers in ATVs because, the, again, the train's pretty <laughs> Um, including Sean's dad himself on his ATV. There were searchers on horseback. There were just people everywhere. And again, like this train is not forgiving. There's lots of rock formations and limestone ridges. There are natural caves. And then there's all these abandoned mines and mine shafts. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there were just a lot of perils basically facing Sean. I can see how that would be really scary of like, maybe he he fell down one of the mine shafts, maybe he fell off one of the rock formations. And that's how they were conducting the search, kind of mm-hmm. assuming that he was hurt, that he had yeah. fallen and broken a leg or something like that. But so far, there was not a single trace, literally nothing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the search is going on, but there is not like a single solitary trace of Sean. And when I say nothing, I mean nothing. No trace of the bicycle, no torn clothing, you know, not a shoe, no blood, no skid marks in the road from either bike tires or or car tires. Mm -hmm. Just nothing. You know, the best anyone had to go off of as far as location was just the fact that his last sighting at 430 uh, was right by this one church. Okay. And that was really all they had to kind of center their search at all. So the search was exhaustive. I love this quote from Rose Hoffman, who was the director of the fire department there in town. She told her people, I want you to count every blade of grass. Aw. And they did. Yeah, they did. Yeah. The search was like calculated and expertly coordinated. If you read the details of how they conducted this search, It reads as a how-to manual on how to do this stuff, which actually would end up being um, kind of a way in which this case could positively influence the world moving forward. And I'll get to that later. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, but that was Monday and Monday became Tuesday and there was nothing. Tuesday became Wednesday and there was nothing. Finally, later that Wednesday, somebody came forward with a tip about a woman who had been spotted with new damage on her car. So she very quickly came under suspicion for hitting a little boy out in the countryside. Sounds a lot like Erica Baker. I know. I had that thought while I was writing this part. So um, unfortunately, it was very quickly concluded that she had actually just hit a dog instead. Still awful, but... Awful, yeah. But, you know, it wasn't Sean Hornback. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, she was driving an unregistered vehicle and had several other warrants out for her arrest. It was a win and a loss at the same time for the law enforcement. None of those warrants were extreme in any way. But but she was very quickly ruled out in Sean's disappearance. It just, it wasn't her. And they knew. So Wednesday, there was also kind of another crushing defeat to the morale. In this case, the volunteer search was called off that night on behalf of that fire department. Authorities said that they had done all they could. And it was their belief that this was not a search and rescue mission and instead a criminal investigation. Okay. That's rough. Oof. Yeah. So if you can imagine the blow to the family on that one, just that sense of futility, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so like the family's feelings, they were kind of mixed on that. Like they were initially incensed by that decision, but after some more thought, they kind of came around to thinking that it was probably smart for authorities to kind of concentrate their efforts on some kind of foul play 
perhaps to get some more expertise involved, you know. Yeah, because I imagine that that call also just calls in a different unit with more of that expertise. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, kind of on the other hand, like suspending the volunteer organization left the family just feeling kind of useless. That had been a way that Pam and Craig and their friends had been able to really like do something, you know. Yeah. So they actually ended up launching SeanHornbeck.com that day. And that allowed them to create, you know, to kind of do do what they felt was their part. They created like printable missing posters mm-hmm. and then they were using it as kind of a news feed for updates and stuff like that. And in 2002, that is kind of a feat. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I just think kind of kudos to them for like just finding something productive to do the mm-hmm. whole time that wasn't going to interfere with with police, you know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think that's the nice part is that it doesn't interfere with police. It's just getting trying to get information out there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I just think they they played it so smart. So mm-hmm. smart. So on Thursday, so the FBI and the Missouri State Highway Patrol Division of Drug and Crime, where they officially took over, which, again, is also just a good signal for people mm-hmm. that like, OK, now we're bringing out the big dogs here. We're going to this is going to take a different turn. So they set up a headquarters at the fire station and then. Uh, simultaneously, Sean parents, they organized the Sean Hornbeck search and rescue team for volunteers to join and just help out whenever possible, be that like manning the tip lines or, yeah. you know, kind of doing whatever. So they were like pretty adamant, like they're not going to step on police toes at all. It's more like here's kind of this bank of people that will do whatever authorities need them to do. And yeah, case. that's awesome. Oh, I love this community so much. I love Pam and Craig so much. They're just so phenomenal. And they also like really quickly took to media Mm -hmm. locally and nationally. So they like granted interviews and quotes to pretty much anybody that would listen. They flew out to go be on the Today Show with Katie Couric. And they got Sean's case featured on America's Most Wanted. Like, hell yes. Yeah, they wanted Sean's face and his information just everywhere Mm -hmm. nationally. You know, that that was kind of the poignant part to me. Like, Sean's face was everywhere, but Sean himself was nowhere. Yeah. Same night, like, this is all happening in just a couple of days. A psychic, bringing you back to psychics. You know I hate these. (laughs) I knew you'd be excited. (laughs) There are a lot of psychics in this story, actually. This is my first three. So, um, a psychic contacted Pam and Craig claiming that Sean had been hit by a motorcycle on Highway 47, which intersects Highway A, where he was last seen. Mm -hmm. Um, And just another one of those, like, country highways. And that search parties should be investigating a wooded ravine along the road, is what the psychic said. So, the volunteer search effort headed out that way, uh, headed by Craig. And in that area, they found some skid marks in the road and some random, like, parts like nuts and bolts and stuff like that so they're thinking interesting interesting the psychic the motorcycle driver no oh i was sure are we sure no okay (laughs) well we're sure of nothing i guess at this point right i was gonna say that would be one way to assuage your guilt without admitting it Yeah, that would be an interesting technique, wouldn't it? Like, we have all these people that, like, call law enforcement. What if you called pretending to be a psychic? Yeah. I hate that idea, but I think it's interesting. Anyway, Um, sorry. Anyway, no, it's okay. So it's it's really unfortunate, though, that that 
obviously that theory was cut, you know, pretty fast because, you know, the skid marks were there when they went out to search that day, but they weren't there four days prior when it would have struck Sean's disappearance. So it just, the timeline didn't make sense. But at this point, like, you know, these, these tips, these violent tips have been coming in and that kind of got people off on this thought that maybe it was meth related. Like um, he had been hit by some meth heads while they were out doing something terrible and then they did away with him or he saw something he shouldn't have seen or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that kind of became kind of the chorus in town. And I kind of took it as kind of an us versus them thing. Like it was a way to to have an answer that wouldn't implicate people like within the fabric of the community, you know? That's definitely a scapegoat. Mm-hmm. And police were like adamant. They were squashing that story everywhere it came okay. up. Okay, good. They were like, no, it's not. I mean, they looked into the known dealers in the area. Like With stuff like that, as much as you can try to squash it, the rumor is going to persist. Yeah. And people need an answer. I mean, we've got a missing little boy here and it's terrifying and they need to think something, you know, and they need a villain and that's an easy villain, you know, especially like, I don't know, just when you're scared, you're looking for anything to blame anything. I mean, I think like there's kind of that rumor mill kind of hiking up in town and then law enforcement. I was really impressed by law enforcement in this in the early stages of this case because they were doing some pretty smart things. One of their strategies was to look at every ticket and citation that happened in the area that Sunday, okay, hoping that like, an erratic driver had been involved somehow or that somebody had seen something, like just tracing who was anywhere in the region of Highway yeah. A that day. And nothing turned up, but I just thought it was smart. Does the highway connect any bigger towns? Not really. So basically, you're kind of in the middle of nowhere. And there's lots of other little towns that just kind of dot the area, you know, like, so there'd be like a county seat kind of a town, but we're talking like 20,000 people, you know, like, okay, St. Louis is about an hour away, hour and a half. Yeah. But you probably wouldn't take that country road to get there, you know? Yeah. So... Yeah, so it's really, it's very, very disheartening because there's just nothing, there's just nothing out there. I mean, it's just a lot of wilderness and just these like tiny towns kind of dotted along the way. Yep. There would be kind of another like discouraging blow very shortly thereafter. On October 17th, the authorities disbanded their search hub at the fire department, which was kind of like a visible sign that they were working on it. You know what I mean? Like when there's a, a space that communicates something really positive to the community and to the families and everything. Um, and they just, they disbanded that particular operation. Mm-hmm. They promised it didn't mean that they were not looking for Sean anymore, but it did just kind of signal like a clear pulling away of resources. You know, it's definitely, it means a shift in the case. And it's been two weeks at this point with nothing to go on. Exactly. And it was just, it was just a blow. Like it was very disheartening to people. I think it was interesting that, you know, people expressed that feeling to to law enforcement, like, loudly, adamantly. Yeah. But authorities said, look, the fact that we have nothing, like, nothing at all, makes us think that he might still be alive out there. Okay. Okay. There's this kind of, like, weird sense of hope. And I don't know, like, if that was meant to communicate real hope or if it was meant to just kind of get people off their backs a little bit. I don't know. Who knows, honestly. Yeah, I just thought it was kind of an interesting thing for them to say. So 
Pam and Craig, never to be discouraged for long. I love it. I love them. I know. They took things into their own hands and they doubled down in their own organization of, of search efforts. And they actually were able to get law enforcement officers from other towns, suburban St. Louis, to join their search parties for a time. So for a few weeks, they still had like a lot of people out. But by Thanksgiving, they could really only count on about 10 to 12 people kind of at any given time. So it just really started to just kind of dissolve. It has to be so rough for these parents because like the more time goes on, like the more it hurts for them. Yeah. But the more other people kind of fall by the wayside in terms of the support. Exactly. You know, the sad part is that the data tells you Mm -hmm. that hope should be lost by then. And that's the that's the other unfortunate part is like you could imagine law enforcement or somebody, you know, the DA, like somebody having a conversation where they're like, look, it's drying up because it's drying up. Yeah. And that's just got to be. The hardest it it took a toll. Yeah. yeah. It took a toll on these people. And I'm just like, I'm glad they kind of channeled all their energy into, you know, working on their own organizations and stuff like that and trying to be like a positive force for other families and stuff. But yeah, you know, it had to have been such a blow. So November 6th was the one month marker of his disappearance. On November 6th, another incredibly promising lead came forward. A woman called in and said that someone she had heard from had hit Sean on the highway about a quarter of a mile from where he was last seen. And that they got spooked by what had happened. And the driver hopped out, saw that they had hit Sean, and panicked and buried him off the highway and then burned his bike. That sounds a lot like the first tip. It does. Yeah, it does. It also sounds a lot like Erica Baker. I know. I keep having flashes of her. I think it's interesting, too, that the tip came through to the volunteer organization. So it came through to Pam and Craig's organization. Okay. And so his volunteers went out to the area first. So, you know, Craig and his volunteers, you've got this handful of people there. They go out to this area. They're literally on their hands and knees, like Mm -hmm. just searching through the grass, searching through the brush, looking for soft earth or like evidence of a burn pile, anything. And so if you can imagine them on their knees, just like literally crawling through this landscape Mm -hmm. as they're crawling, they come upon a pile of bloody intestines. What? Nearby the intestines are two pairs of gloves and an empty milk jug. Okay. So obviously this is more than volunteers can deal with. So um, they immediately contacted the FBI. The FBI came out, cordoned off the scene, gathered everything, sent the entrails off to the lab for analysis, all that stuff. Unfortunately, the information came back very quick, and it was pig guts from a farmer who had slaughtered a pig on that property and then had dismembered the animal out there. So... Okay. That was just another one of these moments where it's like, tip, hope, crushed. Crushed, yeah. And then not too long after that, the lead detective on the case was replaced by a part-time person. Which, no! Yeah, yes. Just sends that sign that uh, it's evaporating, it's evaporating, it's evaporating. Yep, yep. So, you know, because of that, that's kind of the big signal that law enforcement was pulling back. And so life just kind of had to start going on for the Hornbacks. 
mm-hmm. the Hornback family, I should say. I just think it's so interesting how they live their life for the next little while here. They have like one foot in the door of normal life. Everyone's back to work. You know, his sisters are in high school and they're just kind of going through their, you know, their their daily lives and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then Pam and Craig simultaneously are just constantly searching. So in December, they started the Sean Hornbeck Foundation, which was kind of an offshoot of that original organization. And basically because they had learned so much about how to conduct search efforts and how to communicate with media, they basically like channel that expertise into kind of an educational organization for other Oh yeah. Yeah. Good for them. Yeah. So they did that and then they started the Sean Hornbeck Search and Rescue Team, which is basically like an on call volunteer organization that mm-hmm. will mobilize to search for missing kids in Missouri, Illinois, Arkansas, Indiana, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Iowa. So basically the kind of surrounding region. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, I just think that's such a wonderful way to channel that grief and that questioning and that all that just like... Can I volunteer for that? I would totally volunteer for that. You totally can. You totally can. Aww. You should. I just think they, they're amazing people just to be able to do that. They also did not pull back on their involvement with psychics at this point either. <laughs> can, can I stop and ask? So obviously anytime a, a kid goes missing, first suspects are the parents. Was there any investigation, any suspicion of the parents, anything like that? Yes, obviously there's oh, yeah. you know that immediate questioning. Craig worked at like a software company in suburban St. Louis. Pam worked part-time in town. Their whereabouts were like easily accounted for that day. So there was not suspicion there. They briefly looked at Sean's bio dad, Uh um, who was so far out of the picture that it wasn't a possibility. So, but yeah, like they looked at whether or not there was any kind of like suspected abuse in the background, anything like that. There was just nothing. Okay. Yeah. Good, clean family easily ruled out. Yeah, exactly. And of course, the eyes pivot to Craig first as the stepfather, but they pivoted to Craig. He was checked out and they pivoted right right back away from him, you know. So due diligence done. They sound like an awesome family. I'm just, you know. They are. And it really was like a really, I just kept being kind of stunned by like, it's such this like small town atmosphere, but I really feel like the authorities were like every step of the way doing the right thing. You know, there was just... It was sad because there was just nothing to see. So, you know, you can see why they would turn to psychics, like any information, anything they can latch on to, any sense of hope, anything, anything. Psychics pick up on it and pray on it. <laughs> yeah, you know I'm such a cynic when it comes to this stuff. Anyway, go ahead with psychic number two. Well, and you should be. But um, what's interesting, though, I will say is that the involvement with the psychics, bullshit notwithstanding, uh-huh. kept them in the media. Because yeah. Yeah. they went on the Montel Williams show mm-hmm. to see Sylvia Brown, who's a pretty famous psychic. Yeah. And she told them on air that Sean was dead. But she would not tell them any more until they gave her $700, which they did not have. And so they did not give her. Yeah. So your kid's dead. Pay me for more information. Exactly. And so then James Van Prague, who is another psychic with a show called Beyond with James Van Prague. I've watched this show. You have? Yeah. You know, I love trash TV. 
You do. I know. I spent a little bit of time on his YouTube channel today because I guess that's what he's doing now. I've also watched Bob the Psychic's YouTube channel. Bob the Psychic? Or Psychic, no, Psychic Bob. He's really into uh, Palladians. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm into it. I'm into it. I'm going to start watching it. So, you know, they go out to see James Van Prague and he says the same thing. Sean is dead. And gives some, like, meager details about, there's trees nearby, there's water nearby. Mm. Again, it's Missouri. Rivers and trees are the entire state. Is Welcome a, to the Midwest. tree and a river. Yeah, exactly. And that was, the, that was all there was to it. But at least it kept their names and their faces and Sean's face on TV. You know, uh-huh. just hoping beyond hope that somebody would have a tip of some kind. But, you know, I think there was some piece of them that was authentically seeking those answers through those methods. So you could also yeah. imagine just the letdown of, of everything. So months continued to go by. Um, Sean's 12th birthday was in July. You know, we hit a new school year and then finally a one year anniversary of his disappearance. And at that one year anniversary, the tone really shifted away from finding Sean to remembering Sean. You know, there were still a lot of activity in town, like candlelight vigils and, you know, artwork at the schools and stuff like that. But everything just had to go on. Pam and Craig, again, like they're back at work. The sisters are just continuing their education. Like, Life in Rich was just kind of chugged along and, you know, everyone's kind of doing their day to day. They're keeping Sean in the media as much as possible. Age progression photos were produced and put on those mailers and stuff like okay. that. Remember those things? Oh, yeah. Um, and on benches and, and stuff like that. So faces out there and, and it's just kind of this like passive. It's time. like a waiting game. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, at this point, you know, no one thinks anything is going to be found. Like, you don't find something by now. You're not going to find something ever. Yeah. Um, so the tides would shift on Monday, January 8th of 2007. So we're talking almost five years after his disappearance. On this day in January, 13-year-old Ben Ownby got off of his school bus in Beaufort, Missouri, which is 40 miles from Witchwoods, with his friend Mitchell Holtz at about 3.30. So the two boys got off the bus and they parted ways. You know, Ben went to his house. Mitchell went to his house. And that was the last time that Ben was seen. Don Ownby, Ben's dad, got home at about 345. And he was kind of accustomed to seeing Ben when he got home, you know. And so, you know, they had kind of a daily ritual that he would come home. Ben would be playing on his computer and doing whatever. And he just wasn't there. And um, by 10 after 4, he knew that something was wrong. And he called police. Uh, and his wife, Doris, while Don was kind of waiting for police, Doris like went straight to the school thinking Ben might still be there for some reason, club or some tutoring or whatever, uh, but he wasn't there. So interestingly, Beaufort is another one of these like tiny unincorporated communities, also really small. Obviously, it's not very far from uh, Richwood, so very similar to Rain. They had been fresh off of another child abduction. Oh, really? Really interesting. Yeah. So four months prior to that, a baby was kidnapped and recovered, thank God. Okay. okay. So um, interestingly, like the police there talked about how that felt like a once in a lifetime or once in a career type of case. Yeah. But, you know, you think about that and Bobby Joe Stinnett and Mm -hmm. all these like kind of bizarre things happening in the state. Uh, Missouri is so weird. Yeah. 
I'm yeah, also like, getting the impression that Missouri is nothing but tiny towns just yeah, scattered. I mean, and then there's St. Louis and Branson. Like St. Louis, and it's so far north as mm-hmm. far as the state goes. You know, I love St. Louis, though. Oh, my gosh. We've I've never been. Okay. Oh, you'd love it. It's so fun. It's so fun. But, yeah, like, there's so many of these, like, weird kind of idiosyncratic cases. And... From what I could tell, like reading some of the police comments and stuff right after Ben went missing, was that it just felt like a big cosmic joke on this town. Like within four months, they've got another child abduction. And Ben, he was he was different from Sean. I'm going to talk about that, too. Was so at the same age or? So Ben was 13. Sean, when he was abducted, was 11. Mm-hmm. And um, but, you know, Sean was outdoorsy and kind of athletic ish and sportsy and stuff like that yeah ben was not so what's interesting is because it was right on the heels of that baby abduction kind of in combination with who ben was as a person but the police immediately went to the abduction theory for this there was no like he might be lost in the woods hurt because it would not have been in ben's character to be like out and about outside he's an inside kid he's an inside kid He was an A student. He was really small for his age. He was a Boy Scout. He was in Science Olympiad. Hmm. They had a very happy, like, intact workaday family. He loved his computer games. That's what his dad would always, like, come home and there would be Ben on the computer, like, playing his games and stuff. So, you know, just there was not a sense that he would get, like, caught up outside, like, having fun outside. You know, Like, he did not fall from a rock formation. He did not get lost hiking. Yeah, exactly. What's interesting. So right away, the local law enforcement, I think because it had so much success with the recovery of that infant that was kidnapped, they right away called in for national reinforcements. Okay. And they kind of immediately got in touch with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to get Ben's face on like everything everywhere. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's that night Ben's on the news that morning he's on the news and papers everywhere. But the problem was is that there was not enough information to issue an Amber Alert. Oh, damn. Damn. So to do an Amber Alert, you have to have a description of a vehicle, right? Really? Yeah. Oh. So because there was no vehicle associated with this, they couldn't issue that Amber Alert. They were able to issue a, quote, endangered person advisory alert instead, which went out at 824 that night. But they couldn't do an Amber Alert. Okay. So it was pretty much quickly deduced that he did not run away. He was not likely to be just lost and hurt. They did think that he must have been abducted by like a distant family member, like an uncle or something like that. So they looked at uncles and grandparents and things like that and ruled out everybody pretty quickly. So the next day they realized like, okay, Mitchell Holtz was that friend. He was the last one to see Ben. Mm-hmm. And so they they brought him in. He was a high school kid, a little bit older than Ben, but they rode the same buses. Mitchell ended up being the difference maker in this case. So Mitchell is a car enthusiast. He's obsessed. <laughs> he loves them. He just loves it. I love when idiosyncratic interests are the turning point. I know. Me too. It makes me so happy. So because he loves cars so much, he said that he noticed on the street there was a white Nissan pickup truck with the words Nissan in black lettering on the back and a camper shell over the the back. 
And if this car did squeal away at a high rate of speed from the street that the bus dropped them off on. Okay. So that is the best clue to date. And again, like he didn't think that much of it at the time. He just liked cars and he figured that Ben was home. So it was just like he just noticed it, you know, and it's kind of unusual vehicles. Mm -hmm. But because Mitchell was able to furnish that description, now they have the ability to issue an Amber Alert because we've got a vehicle. So the Amber Alert went out, which is fantastic. They also were able to go out to where Mitchell said the truck was, and there was some tire tracks that they could make some casts of. So now they've got something as far as Ben. Now, you know, just like with Sean's disappearance, the town again mobilized really quickly, and there were search parties and national media right away. His case was featured on the Nancy Grace show that night. And there was some critique, actually, that police issued the car information to the media right away. And Nancy Grace criticized them by saying that they kind of tipped all their cards. And that really was all they had. But what else can you do? Like, you have to tip your cards in that situation. So, Nancy Grace, you're an idiot. I fucking hate Nancy Grace. Fuck you, Nancy Grace. Yeah. If you're listening, come at us. Yeah. Come at us, avid, mid-wretched listener, Nancy Grace. (laughs) Her and Joe Biden. Her and Joe Biden. (laughs) Our celebrity listeners. But no, (laughs) like, it's not even like that's that much information. And that's the bare minimum that you would put out to be like, we need tips. Please look for this stuff. Yeah. And it's critical and it's all they have. So we have to go with the abduction theory. There's no real choice in this case. You have to. So yeah. Like, the entire region was looking for this truck, you know what I mean? And I would be. Every time I get an Amber Alert on my phone, I'm like... Oh my god, so hardcore. I was like, there's a blue Taurus over there. (laughs) Exactly, I know. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I mean, and people were, like, they paid a lot of attention. So, I'm going to take us now to suburban St. Louis. Thursday, you know, it's been a couple of days with the news and everything... Kirkwood, Missouri is an extremely affluent suburb of St. Louis, like nationally ranked schools, multi-million dollar homes, just like idyllic, it's historic, it's just, it's very bougie place to be. So this guy, Mike Prosperi, owns a pizzeria in downtown Kirkwood. He, you know, having watched the news and everything, he was really troubled by the fact that the description of the truck matched a truck uh, that he knew to belong to one of his employees. Now, his relationship with his employee was very close. The guy had worked for him for over 20 years, knew his family, all this. So Mike Prosperi is like spending this whole Thursday morning just waffling about kind of what to do about the fact of the truck. The description of the truck matched his friend, basically. His friend's name is Michael Devlin, and uh, Devlin managed the pizza shop. So, like, they'd known each other for so long, spent all this time together. It's like um, Pizzagate. It's pizza. <laughs> it totally is. <laughs> it totally is. So, like, he, I literally picture this guy just, like, pacing around, I like, <sighs> what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Like, this and guy wouldn't do that. No, but no, maybe I should. Oh. Exactly. That's the thought process. He was convinced that it was just stupid that he was even having this thought and he's like yeah i'm not gonna do it and then he couldn't get the truck out of his head and then he thought okay like i'm walking to work and he's gonna pass the police station on his way to work i'm gonna i'll i'll let them know that i know of a truck that looks like this 
They'll clear it right away. It can be off my conscience. Whatever. Okay, please tell me he did that. He did. So he walked into the police station, uh, and he talked to Kirkwood Police Captain John Folluo. I like that name. I know, right? And he told the police captain, like, I feel stupid for being here. This is dumb. I'm mad at myself for being here, but... I know this guy, Mike Devlin, his truck matches the truck related to this kid. And, you know, he could tell that the police captain was kind of like taking it in one ear out the other, too, you know. So it's kind of like kind of a whatever conversation. So the police captain's like, well, t- you know, tell me more about this guy. And Mike tells him, well, he's worked for me for over 20 years. He manages my shop. He's a great guy. His nickname is Devo. He's just like a chill dude, everything. And they're like, what is he doing in his free time? And he says, oh, he likes computer games. And the police captain is like, he likes computer games? Because Ben also liked computer games. Uh-huh. So the thought, the wonder there was perhaps he was involved and he may have targeted Ben through an online computer game or something like that. I mean, I feel like that's kind of like a, an immediate reach, but okay, I'm going to let you go there. Yeah, I mean, it's not me. It's Captain Fulo. But that reach... Mm-hmm. In his thought was what made the yeah. captain take it seriously at all. Exactly. And, yeah. and he would be glad that he did later. So Barry, Mike Press, Barry left the police station. He said he felt like a dick. Like he just felt like crap. He called his adult daughter and was like, I, I just did this. I feel so terrible. And she literally goes, Dad, you're a dick for doing that. Oh, <gasps> Yeah. Because his whole family knew uh, yeah. as well. Yeah. So it was like, oh. And so I was talking about this with my beautiful partner in life today, and I was like, imagine if your boss, who he's so close to, had to go and report his Kia at a crime scene. Could you imagine? Yeah. So, of course, Press Perry's like, God, I suck. (laughs) So, you know, he went to, you know, he went on with his day. He went to the pizza shop. Of course, Mike Devlin was there, and everybody was kind of playfully ribbing him about the truck. Because it was a very distinct vehicle, you know. And he's in on the joke. He's just laughing it off, you know, kind of whatever. Interestingly, though, at the same time, the police captain was like, well, I'm just going to call the FBI and see what happens. Meanwhile, that night, Kirkwood police officers, Gary Wagster, cool name. I imagine they call him Wags with a Z. Um, (laughs) So Gary Wags, Wagster, and Chris Nelson, they were out at this apartment complex on South Holmes Street to go serve on a warrant to arrest a man down there. And that guy wasn't home at the time. But when they got there, they noticed a white Nissan pickup truck with a camper cover on the back in the parking lot. So they started to knock on some doors, trying to figure out who the truck belonged to. It belonged to the tenant in Unit D. Guess what his name was? Devo. Michael Devo Devlin. Yeah. So, if we know where this is going yet, we're about to. I have no idea. Where are we going? I'm lost. (laughs) You're dumb. (laughs) (laughs) JK, JK, I love you. This is not the most, like, mazy. (laughs) No, it's... No, but there's there's some plot twist coming. All right, all right, all right. So Devlin confirmed that, that, yeah, that's my truck. And the police had told him that it matched a truck involved in an abduction. And once they said that, his kind of chill attitude immediately went on the defensive and he became super fidgety. 
And so two FBI agents were also dispatched out and they interviewed him at the apartment complex in the communal laundry room because Devlin would not let them into his apartment. And he said, no, my godson is inside. You know, he's sleeping or whatever. You can't come in. So uh, they also went out to take another look at the truck. And when they looked at his tires, the tires didn't match the um, tracks found at the scene of Ben's kidnapping. So the FBI agents, like, they laughed and they're like, yeah, well, it doesn't match. It doesn't match. So they came and went. But the local PD... They kept an eye on Mike Devlin anyway. Devo, we should say. They kept an eye on Devo, and they saw through the nasty blinds that there was a young boy in the apartment um, sitting at a kitchen table. Yeah. So finally, they knocked on the door, and a teenage boy answered the door, identifying himself as Devlin's godson. Um, and that was the only person that was there. And because Devlin, like the truck tires didn't match, the police kind of just gave up the ghost at that point. Like, ah, um, oh, uh, yeah. Did he give yeah. a name? Did we have a verification that this was his godson? Did he so match the boy, a description? The boy gave the name Sean Wilcox. Okay. So it's not Ben Ownby and. Um, you know, they just kind of went on their way. Okay. So Friday, Devlin came to work totally normal. Well, he came to work at his normal time, I should say, but he wasn't acting normally. He had been up all night by the police, you know, kind of knocking on his door and like periodically wanting to chat and everything. So he was being kind of like cold and kind of standoffish, which wasn't his usual way. Uh, and then Mike Pressberry thought that maybe he was like freezing him out because he'd gotten wind that... Mm-hmm. He was why, you know, they, the police had come to see him and everything. While that was happening, the police realized that they had gotten the identification wrong when they looked at those tires. And the tires what? had to match. Yeah. Shut up. I'm so mad right now. I know. I know. The tires were, in fact, a match. What did they and, fuck up? Well, so the way I understand it is, like, tire tracks sort of like a fingerprint. Yeah. So if you think about how people had to analyze fingerprints before technology did it for them. Like, yeah, you just had to do it by like by eye. Yeah. So there's a pretty big margin of error there, you know? Yeah. So if you're like you're looking at the tires, not in a lab context, not looking at the print and the tire simultaneously, it's just human error, you okay. know? Stupid human error. Yeah. Once they realized that they had made that human error... They descended back upon the pizzeria. So, uh, <laughs> so that poor pizzeria, which is still open, by the way, and I want to kind of get a pizza there. I hope they're doing well. It looks like it when I Google Street viewed it. It's looking like really cute and bougie. So it's not their fault. It's Devo's. It's not. Yeah, and he was a model employee. So for twenty, <sighs> plenty of people were. You know that wasn't quite enough to put him under arrest yet. But the police came to the pizzeria. And basically, every time he had a break, they would uh, talk to him. Uh-huh. So he told police, it's just me and my godson at home. There's nothing weird. I just don't like police. We've had bad run-ins with you guys before. He had called the police to report, like, a stolen, something stolen out of his little courtyard or whatever. Uh-huh. And the police were super rude to him. And he was just like, screw you guys. He doesn't like the police. 
So when they ask, like, why are you being all cagey? He's like, I just don't like you, you know? Then was he just... known to have, like, a godson? Like, did the other guy just be like, yeah, oh, yeah, he has a godson that lives with him, blah, blah, blah. He had a good story about, you know, me and the godson's dad are best friends. The dad goes on business a lot. The mom is dead. So, you know, he doesn't live with me, but he's here, like, periodically, you know, kind of all his dad travels. Okay. This guy is not... Weird. I mean, he's got a job that he goes to every single day. He's got no record. He's got a great family. His parents have been profiled in the newspaper as like an outstanding top family in the area, like this kind of thing. So there's just nothing that makes him not trustworthy at, you know, at first blush. Okay. So the police, they're talking to him and everything. They're like, uh, where were you on the day of Ben's disappearance? And he says, oh, I was at home. And the truck's not mine. It's my brother's. You know, if there's anything weird about the truck, it's my brother's fault, yada, yada. My brother's got a record, which was true. So he's kind of trying to, like, deflect a little bit on that. And then he finally agreed to let the police take the truck for further examination, which, again, makes you look pretty good, right? All right, yeah. So they take the truck, and then the questioning gets a little bit more intense. And the police asked if he had ever abducted a boy. And he said no. That's a bold question. I know. And then they said, what happens if the tire treads from your truck match the ones at the scene? What are you going to say then? And he said, well, maybe I just have common tires. The police told him tires are like fingerprints. A match is a match. There's no there's no talking your way out of that. And he panicked. And the first thing he said, he's like hyperventilating. The first thing he said is, Sean is not my godson. Sean is Sean Hornbeck. He's at the apartment. What? Oh, no. I didn't see that coming at all. (laughs) Shut up. This is a good story. It is a really good story, but I feel like that was really obvious. Yeah. Well, it wasn't to anybody else. That's the thing. Like, Well, at the time, yeah, I'm sure. Like, that blew everybody's mind away. But, like, so, but where's Ben? Well, he says, the police then ask, has Ben there too? He says, yes. And there's a pause. And he says, I'm a bad person. And the police are basically like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Yeah, right? So many shockers here. Yeah, exactly. So at 3.20, he voluntarily, you know, went with police and uh, led them to his apartment where he opened the door, revealing Sean Hornback and Ben on the couch, like watching TV, whatever. Um, He would give a full confession thereafter. Mm -hmm. and the material of that confession is pretty grim stuff. Yeah. So uh, before I get into the grim stuff, you know, the reunion with Ben's family was obviously amazing. Yeah. But the idea that after four and a half years, Craig and Pam would have their son back was just earth-shattering, mind-blowing, like... I I can't imagine how they felt. How did Sean deal with it? You know what? This is another testament to his family. When they got Devlin out of the way, they said, who are you? And he uh-huh. said, I am Sean Warnback. <gasps> just... So I'd like that moment just like gives me chills to think about. Like, Oh, God. All right. Am I going to have to hear about what happened to him in those four years? Not a ton. Okay. Thank goodness. And we'll give some warning and everything. But yeah, so he was taken into police custody first you know protective custody so the fbi contacted the da in the county that you know he was taken from and the da called his parents and said we have somebody 
We're 95% sure it's really Sean. He's alive. Wow. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I had goosebumps, like, thinking about that moment after all that time and all that. And all of that, like, I mean, that's one of those situations, too, where everybody tells you to give up. Everybody tells you, like, the chances are so slim, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is a one in a million case. Also, suck it, psychics. Yeah, exactly. It's one in a million on so many levels. And Michael Devlin is such um, an aberration. Everything that data tells us about people that commit this type of crime. Uh He's not. He doesn't fit any of those things. So that's kind of another really interesting angle that I want to talk about, too. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about how did we get here from from everything as far as what happened to Sean. Uh I'm not going to give a ton of detail as far as you know, some of the violence that occurred and everything. I would just say that if you are very worried about hearing about what happened in that four years, that maybe you skip ahead a little bit here. So the day that Sean disappeared, how Devlin did it without leaving a trace was that he bumped Sean with his bicycle, not enough to hurt him, just enough to get him to basically fall off. Mm -hmm. And then acting like it was an accident, ran out, and, you know, sort of feigned concern first and then told him you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Put his bike in the back of the vehicle, duct taped his mouth shut, you know, bound his hands, everything, shoved him in the car and brought him back to his apartment in Kirkwood. For that first month, Sean was uh, duct taped his mouth, everything, and he was tied to a futon. He was sexually assaulted daily for that first month in the apartment. Um, On Halloween, or or around Halloween, they're not sure of the exact date, Devlin planned to kill Sean. Mm -hmm. He put Sean in his vehicle and drove out to the woods and began to strangle him. While he was in the process of strangling him, the way that he tells it, he was looking into Sean's face, and he couldn't do it. He gave Sean a minute to be able to talk and Sean said I will never tell anybody if you let me live Mm -hmm. and they made an agreement that Sean lived with Devlin for as long as you know Devlin wanted him to and that he would never tell and in exchange he would be allowed to live oh my god so when they got back after that incident Sean was still you know regularly assaulted But he was also at that point um, able to eat like teenage boy dream foods, right? Like pizza every day, like all this kind of stuff. Um, He's really trying to instill this Stockholm kind of thing, it sounds like. Yep. Yep. And that's what I was going to talk to you about. He was given like video games, computer games. He was told like, your family doesn't want you anyway. You need me. Like these types of things that we hear in cases like this. where Yeah. You know, there's an attacker that keeps somebody like alive and relatively healthy. Yeah. The question is always like, why didn't you run? Why didn't you run? Yeah. Um, and the answer is this indoctrination. Like they they strip you of all of your humanity and then give mm-hmm. it in small doses, right? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And that's yeah. just something that happens in that mental process where you know you become. Well, you live. So that's your survival. Yeah, and I mean, it is. It's a method of survival when you. You understand if I do anything else, I will die. Mm-hmm. This person has kept me alive thus far. They've kept their end of the bargain. And the other option really does feel just like it's death. Yeah. This is yeah. interesting. Cause like we 
we think about like the Natalie Kampusha's her case, and there was another one that Red Handed did a really, really good episode on Red Handed. I can't remember the girls, and they're so good. Um, hi, Red Handed. <laughs> but like it, another case where, you know, this couple kept a girl alive. Essentially, she lived as their maid and, you know, sex slave. And yeah, just the indoctrination, the belief that like I have one choice and that's to deal with this. Otherwise, I die. Yeah. But it sounds like Sean kept a piece of his humanity in his brain. He did uh, in some really poignant ways, actually. So it was really interesting, kind of like in, I guess, in exchange for his like pseudo freedom. Yeah, pseudo freedom. What that meant for Sean, he didn't have to go to school. And that was framed as like, you don't have to go to school, you know, a good thing. So he also was able to, he had all the video games he could want. Mm -hmm. He had um, access to the internet. Really interesting. In that last like six months or so, he actually had a girlfriend. Sean did. Um, Like a local girl that he dated. He went to dances at her school. Wow. He went to a really prestigious, uh, one of the most prestigious Catholic schools in the country, actually, she went to. And he went to dances at her school with her. He was allowed to be like out and about during the day that like while Devlin was at work. What? So he had a degree of freedom. I mean, there was actually a bench with his face on it, like not that far from where he was living. Oh, my God. I wonder. I can just imagine in my head him walking by that and knowing that's me. Yeah. Yeah. Just the cognitive process of that must have been insane. But I could also imagine like a weird degree of hopelessness. Like when you see his age progression picture, it looks nothing like how he turned out looking actually. Oh, really? Yeah. So like I could imagine just seeing that and being like really defeated by that in a weird way. Like it made me kind of upset looking at how off it was too, you know. I never think those age progression photos look real. They never look like real people. No, I mean, they do their best and sometimes they do a pretty good job, but this one was just, it just wasn't remotely on point. So yeah, yeah, he had all of these experiences and he actually kept an eye on the website that his parents had set up and he had actually written a couple of posts on it. (gasps) Are you serious? Yeah, I'm going to read them to you. On December 1st, 2005, using the pen name Sean Devlin which is what he was told to tell people his name was. He posted a comment on one of the photos that said, how long are you planning to look for your son? And then a little while later, he wrote, hey, sorry about that last thing I put on there. I write poems and I was wondering if it would be okay to write a poem for the Hornback fam and their son, Sean Hornback. It would be cool if I could, but if you don't want me to, I can understand why, I guess. I was just wondering if I could write a poem in his honor. Sorry, I don't know how to spell that last word. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I'm dying right now. It just made me like, yeah. Uh, Yeah. it's It's so interesting how he tried to keep that connection. Yeah. And I think that that in so many ways is what had to have kept him going. And um, as Pam and Craig were kind of maintaining their lifeline to him in a way, he was maintaining his to them, too. In the only way that he could, that's did Mike Devlin know that he was reaching out, that any of this was happening? 
Not in that way, but he okay. knew, Devlin knew that Sean had like profiles on gaming websites and stuff like that. Like he had like an account with PlayStation, like that sort of thing under the name Sean Devlin with his actual picture on it. So his picture was on like a degree of social media. Wow. At that time. Yeah. So I think it speaks to like, like we talk about like, okay, Stockholm syndrome on behalf of Sean, but a part of me kind of wonders like what was going on with Devlin uh-huh. to where he had that, he could kind of give away that level of control. And one thing that he said later to the FBI in interviews was that he came to love Sean in his own twisted way. Yeah, it is fucked up, like, predator way. Yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, Yeah, right. Like, whatever that means, he came to love Sean in some way. And that, I think, was how he kind of, you know, made these things happen. And... And Sean was entirely dependent on him. Exactly, completely. He also, like, Sean didn't really necessarily know, like, where he was in relation to home, you know, like... I'm in suburban St. Louis. That can mean a lot of things. A lot of times, like people will question like the Stockholm syndrome and all of that. But in Sean's head, any day he could go back to being tied up to a futon. Exactly. Exactly. (sighs) And, you know, I've ever since I started researching this case to put the story all together, which I've been working on for a while, um, I've been looking at other cases like this. Yeah. And the, the pattern is incredible. Yeah. I mean, Devlin also used sleep deprivation on him in that first month. So he yep. only let him sleep in like 45 minute chunks, which is yep. like classic. It's classic indoctrination tools. Yeah. Um, I've looked at like several other cases that do the exact same thing. And yeah. that. So he really just, you know, he knew that Sean was under his thumb. I think that's really what it boils down to. Like he knew mm-hmm. that Sean wasn't going to go run to the police. He had actually, Sean had actually had a couple of interactions with police as Sean Devlin, at one point, the bike that Devlin had bought for him was stolen. Mm-hmm. They reported it to police. Police came out to get a statement from him. He said, you know, my name is Sean Devlin. Here's what happened with my bike. So he had spoken to police before in the course of this kidnapping. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, then the question kind of became, like, A, why did he do this? And then B, why then? Yeah. Why Ben was a pretty uh, sick and twisted and easy answer. Uh Uh, Sean had outgrown the scope of Devlin's preferences. That's what I kind of imagined. Yeah. Yeah. And even though uh, Ben and Sean were only two years apart in age, Ben looked a lot younger than he was. Yeah. Yep. That was the reason there. Why Sean in the first place? Like, why did this happen? Devlin, at first, he just kind of made this excuse of, um, you know, he was getting to the point in his life where his friends were getting off and getting married and having kids, and he didn't have uh, friends to hang out with as much anymore. So he instead had to kidnap a child. That was what he told the police kind of in that immediate, like, questioning and confession series. Okay. I guess that's a type of logic. I guess. And that's the thing is like, I've been thinking a lot about the why, the why, the why. And Mike Devlin came from a wonderful family by all accounts. He was adopted as were a couple of his other siblings by, by all accounts, a wonderful set of parents. He had never experienced any kind of sexual abuse or trauma, no physical abuse or trauma as a child, nothing like that. So he had this kind of idyllic way of growing up. He was adopted 
was he is do we know anything about him pre-adoption or adopted at birth or yeah okay. adopted at birth we don't know anything else about it okay the only thing that was really kind of unusual about him was for somebody growing up in a really great family in a really affluent neighborhood he had like no ambition and never did yeah. so he started working at the pizza place when he was in high school and he was pretty good at like the basic operations and stuff like that. So he worked his way up to manager at that store. And Mike Prosperi, his boss there, would talk to him periodically about like, you know, you've outgrown this place professionally. Yeah. Prosperi knew him as an excellent store manager and he did a great job. And so he was just always perplexed why Devlin would just stay. Yeah at this place and there was just never really an answer to that he just had like no inherent ambition whatsoever real quick as far as like what happened legally he he confessed he was charged with both kidnappings 17 charges for forcible sodomy with regards to ben's kidnapping and 53 with regard to sean's four charges of production of child pornography and two counts of transporting a child across state lines he had actually taken Sean with him to a family wedding in Arizona. Sean didn't attend the wedding, but he came with him. Oh, okay. He also once took Sean to Illinois for some reason. We don't want you here. Yeah, I know, right? We don't want we, you, Mike Devereaux. So all in all, he was sentenced to 71 life sentences, which amounts to more than 1,800 years in prison. He had 74 counts total. Missouri does love their ridiculous sentences. They do. They do. And I've been thinking a lot about that today because I was talking about this case with my husband and he was like, why the hell bother with that? And I was like, it's symbolic. Every single case, every single charge carries a life sentence. Like, yeah, it's symbolic. And that means a lot to people to see that, you know, like, yeah, it's not practical. We know he's not going to be reincarnated and then like, you know, serve another sentence. He's going to be reincarnated into a sea slug. <sighs> that's what he deserves but it is it's just kind of an ultimate fuck you of like there is nothing redeeming about a single action therefore you're getting the worst possible sentence for every single action exactly and he also has not had a great time in jail he Good. he's had several run-ins with other inmates including one where he was stabbed multiple times uh by a fellow inmate to the point where authorities thought for a second about um, having him moved under a new name to a prison outside of the state, uh, okay. which they did not end up winning that motion, but I thought it was interesting. So, you know, Mike Devlin is somebody with nothing to lose, essentially, mm -hmm. at this point. So he ended up in, I want to say 2008. Yeah, 2008. He furnished a 10-hour interview to the FBI who just were like... Why? Yeah. Why? What the fuck? He gave this interview. It was like 10, 11, 12 hours long. Basically, kind of went in there with the thinking, like, he's anomalous. He did not have any abuse in his background. He had, you know, this, like, quote-unquote great family. Like, just nothing that would communicate extremely violent, disgusting, cunning sexual predator. He basically told them about how... For his entire life, this is going to be a conversation about pedophilia as a warning. So he noticed an attraction to young boys as a teenager. It's when he realized that he was growing up, but his tastes were not growing up. And he told authorities that he did try to assault a younger boy when he was in high school. He couldn't 
get himself to go through with it mm -hmm. and that he basically kind of channeled all of his energy into shutting down that predilection so i think that kind of accounts for his lack of other ambitions like he was really just trying very hard to like clamp this down mm -hmm. and for a long time like he wouldn't work the front of the house at the pizzeria because a lot of teenagers and young kids were there a lot and he didn't want to see them or be like in a position to you know be tempted basically mm -hmm. he was like okay well clearly i have an attraction to you know the same sex so i'm gonna try to date adult men so he was trying authentically to date men and like nothing was working for him and so he's like, okay, I'm just going to like not be with anybody basically. And just like kind of shut myself off and just be, you know, hermit essentially. And then one summer he was up at his family's cabin in Pentwater, Michigan. And he saw a 10 year old boy on the beach. And he said that when he saw that boy, it was like the devil just came alive inside of him. It was, felt like such a triggering event that he basically went home to Missouri and spent the next two years driving around small towns, casing where he could find and abduct a young boy. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So rather than, I don't know, like seeking help for something. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Good choice. Choices. Yeah, I know. I thought this was interesting. The FBI asked him, how would you label your sexual orientation? And what his answer was, was just one word. Sick. So he knew that this is wrong. Yeah, totally. And he knew that he could not illegally act on it, you know, for for all those years. So they also talked about, he talked about how he basically developed like a food addiction in that time. He was very, very heavy. And he kind of like channeled everything into these like kind of obsessive behaviors. Otherwise, he worked like 18 hours a day. He worked at the pizzeria and then he worked part time at a funeral home. But again, why not get help? Yeah. Why yeah. not see a therapist rather than seeking actual help for this and getting it addressed? He he tries to sublimate it, which never works. And then he just leans all the fucking way into it. Exactly. Yeah. So he's like he was channeling all of his energy into trying to like, yeah, sublimate. He gets he basically develops a food addiction and the process and then his health kind of declined as a result of that. He had type 2 diabetes and then a gangrenous foot at one point. He had toes amputated, all this. How old was he, like, when all of this happened? I want to say he was, like, 34 when he was arrested. Whoa, that's a young age. I'm thinking, like, yeah. for the gangrenous foot, that's usually in 60-, 70-year-old people with diabetes. No, no, he was 42 at his arraignment, so... Yeah, I mean, a, a young age still guy. really young yeah. for a gangrenous foot. And at one point, they said that he was, like, an obsessive, compulsive, like, cleaner. Yeah. That's not what they found in his apartment when they went there. But it was, like, that's how he was for a long time. And then that kind of synced back to what Mike Pressberry said about how he was as a worker. Extremely diligent, like, to the point of it, his work almost feeling kind of mechanized. Like, it was that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that obsessive. And then when he abducted Sean, it was, like, all of a sudden, he did kind of become a little bit more lax. He kind of let go of some of the like obsessive compulsive cleaning behaviors, things like that. But what's interesting yeah. is like I'm, I'm imagining from an outsider's perspective, his coworkers and be like, oh, Mike seems like he's doing way better now. Yeah, exactly. Like he's loosened up. He's making jokes with us again, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. I just think it's interesting that the whole time he knew that 
you know, what his tendencies were were not something that he could act on. He tried to sublimate as far as possible. And then there was this triggering event with the boy on the beach. And then that just cascades into the rest of this, like, horrific story. Mm -hmm. And he contends to this day that he was not involved in any other abductions of boys. He has been suspected in five other cases, yeah. none of which have been substantiated. The most significant one is a 2001 case of a boy that went missing up in Benton Harbor up here, Benton Harbor, Michigan. And Devlin was at the family cabin in Pentwater at that time that this boy disappeared. Okay. Uh, but he was never found. His name is Stephen Kraft. Um, but Devlin denies involvement. And I don't really know what to make of that. It's so interesting because I imagine also kind of thinking about his thinking about Mike's story then in a way giving Sean all of that freedom more fulfills Mike's fantasy. Yeah. That, oh, he's just my boyfriend. I'm not holding his Kim captive. This isn't anything. This is just, just my boyfriend and this is normal. Yeah. Right. And I think that actually relates to another interesting thing he told the FBI in that interview. Uh, you know, he talked about going on this like two year tour through rural Missouri, basically, you know, trying to figure out like how these small towns are laid out, like where the mm-hmm. kids hang out, this kind of stuff. During that, the FBI interviewers were like, why didn't you like find a, you know, family friend with a kid or, you know, a, a, a boy from work or something like that to groom? And he said, I don't have the social graces to groom somebody. I knew it had to be random. Huh. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. It's so intentional. Yeah. Wow. And he's he's so devious and he's so... Everything about this case is an aberration from the norm. You know, like Sean Hornback, everything the data tells us is that Sean Hornback should be dead. That's what data tells us would have happened in that case. Sean Hornback, though, his, I want to kind of like talk about what his, how his family handled his return because it was brilliant. Yeah. They brought him home and basically they were really casual. Like, let's watch movies. Let's hang out. They didn't ask him any questions about what happened. Good. That's awesome. They just kind of wanted to sink him back into like a normal life. Yeah. And then piece by piece by piece, he would talk about it. Yeah. The other great thing is that the documents in the case are sealed. So the only thing we know about what happened to him was what he has said okay. and also what the charges tell us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he talked about especially that first month and the incident up until Halloween. Everything else we just kind of extrapolate from the charges themselves, yeah. which I think is a great protective gesture for both him and Ben yeah. on behalf of the system. So I just really appreciated them. His family, they just didn't pry into anything. They got him immediate uh, mental health support. And they basically just let it come to him in time. And, you know, if you look him up to this day, like he, uh, I believe he's working in welding. I think he's a year younger than me or two years younger than me or something like that. Yeah. Um, And he's, you know, just kind of an everyday dude that says he has a happy life. Like he's working. He's got tattoos that kind of commemorate the lessons that he felt like he learned kind of through his experience. And that was around... Um, like faith and resilience basically and i'm so glad he's doing okay yeah like he's healing so i think it's kind of like it's a profound survivor tale so it's a different take on true crime you know it's yeah a murder case but uh certainly there are many many crimes involved here but 
I also just think it's a really kind of amazing case of like what happens when the odds in every way are stacked against a good outcome. Mm-hmm. And Sean is okay. Yeah. To stay. You know, I mean, obviously there's trauma and there's all these terrible things, but he's coping. You know? Yeah. I think that's really beautiful. There are certain wounds that nothing can heal. But like you said, he's coping and that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that is my tale this week. Wow. Yeah. That was a strange one. Wasn't it? Yeah. Ah. It's a messed up story. Yeah, I'm glad both the boys survived and was Ben okay? Was there anything wrong? Like, was he safe? He was safe. You know, he was assaulted in that couple of days and... The police did come under a degree of fire because of the incident with um, mismatching the tire tracks, because basically that's why uh, they had an extra night there. Ah. Um, If the tire tracks had been matched right away, that extra night wouldn't have happened. And it's pretty much a miracle that those boys weren't killed that night. Yeah. There's no evidence to show that Michael Devlin is a murderer. That's also really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Is why I'm not sure if he's connected with the Stephen Craft case or not, because Stephen Craft was never found. That's and so. I have a hard time believing that his first abduction would lead to murder, but these wouldn't. Well, I don't know because I could almost see a situation in which, like, he freaks out at his first attempted mm-hmm. abduction, and maybe he murders on purpose, maybe it's on accident, yeah. um, and then covers it up. Yeah, that's true. And it's, you know, he did have the thought with Sean and he couldn't go through with it. Exactly. Like he had the plan. He knew to drive him out into the woods, this, mm-hmm. that, and the other. Yeah. I could go either way on it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, circumstantially, it lines up. He was in the area at the same time. You know, he talks about seeing a boy at the beach. Yeah. You know, it could be that he's not telling the whole story. And we've seen that sure. before. Yeah, we sure have. <laughs> not like we're dealing in honest people. Exactly. so on that note tell us about next week oh guys 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 is it finally happening it's happening it's finally happening it's february it's my birthday month and my gift to you is an ed gein spectacular i am so excited so we Normally, we do like to do these more unknown cases, but when the obsession that we constantly come across in this show is, why are you like that? Yeah. That question is never bigger than when you talk about Ed Gein. Yeah, true that. Why are you like this Ed Gein? Yes. That is what the next couple of episodes are going to be about because this is going to be a multi-parter guys and i think that's going to have to be the name of the episode too why are you like this Ed? why are you like it it is done like you have no choice now you've already said the title. like this is it this is it guys i have been working on this for so long i have gone through uh, i have fucked up my mother's newspapers.com subscription <laughs> <laughs> I have read case files. I've read his confession. I've read his psych report. It's like a lot of us know the what, but we don't know the why. The the what is so widely available out there. And that's what I was going to say. 
If you are looking for a super gory just listing of all the weird shit they found on his house, you can find that on Wikipedia. This is yeah. going to be a deep dive. So, yes. I'm really excited. I have I am so intrigued by Ed Gein and what makes him the way that he is. What are you going to do with your free time once we're done with this? This is like literally all you do aside from work. <laughs> your dogs. <laughs> And like, don't tell me it's not, because I know it's true. I'm going to pack. <laughs> yeah, because you're going to be moving into your home. I'm moving, I'm going to leave Edgeen behind me. Indeed. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm so excited. I am so excited. This is going to be awesome. So please come back for that with us. Yes. I am so ready. A major oh. change of pace from uh, this story, but, you know. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I think at this point we kind of have our brands. You uh-huh. know? And, like, this is my brand, and that's your brand. And I fully accept and love that about what this has become. I love our brands. Me too. Aww. And we love you guys out there. So much. You guys are yes. so much fun. We appreciate totally. you. We really do. So just please, as always, like... You know, we're so glad you're out there. Be with us on the socials at Midratchet Everywhere. We love, love, love hearing from you. Mm-hmm. So thank you for being a part of our spooky little lives. Yay. Yay. All right. Let's on that note, it. let's close it. Be nice. Eat cheese. We love you. Should we get started? Let's get started. Let's do it. You're the boss Welcome today. back to Mid Wretched, friends. Oh, Yay. shit. You cut me off. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I'm never just ready, am I? No. Should we try again or just go with that as our intro? I don't know. What do you think? No, Let's try no. both and then we'll see which one I end up using. <laughs> there you go. Okay, that sounds good. Uh,